Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place and we ask that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds, Lord, as we look at this next psalm, God, that we would have a greater understanding, a deeper understanding of the sacrifice that Jesus willingly gave to all of humanity. Spirit of the Most High God, for those who are in a dark place, those who are hurting, those who perhaps may need an extra touch from you, I pray, God, that you would be with them. And that as we look deeper in this psalm, that they would feel encouragement to know that God is with them, God walks with them. And that despite their circumstances, despite our circumstances, you are God. And that in this life or the next, we will be with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. If you're visiting with us, we want to say welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. We are going to continue on a series we started off a few weeks back called Psalms of Summer. And I know it's the most clever title you've ever heard, but I just thought it might be interesting to kind of look through the Psalms. Let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at Psalm 73. And just so you know, um, all the... Uh, previous sermons and their notes all online. If you've missed one, uh, looking for something to listen to on the way to the cottage or having trouble sleeping at night, I recommend both for both. So um, last week, we looked at Psalm 73, and Psalm 73 is a psalm of envy. It's a psalm of looking at this world and saying, why? Right? We look at this world and we see people who are evil, people who are wicked, people who are just mean, and they're, they're prospering. They're rich, they're healthy, they're beautiful, people flock to them. And the psalmist has the same reaction that we do, and the reaction we have is, where's the justice, God? Like, where's the justice? Like, God, are you asleep? Are you awake? Do you not see what's going on in this world? And I think that we can all say the same thing. In Psalm 73, verse 2 to 3, it says this, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We can look at this world and we can say, God, why do these things happen? This natural disaster, why does this person have this disease? And we say, ah, it makes no sense. The psalmist is saying something that perhaps we don't even want to admit to. And what he says is, when I look at the world and see all the injustice, I actually start to doubt you, God. I start to doubt my faith. I start to doubt my belief. God, why do I act proper? Why do I remain faithful when I don't get anything? There's nothing in it for me, God. I, I actually look to you, God, and I think to myself, I, well, why bother? Why bother doing the right thing and get nothing? And even when you read on in the psalm, the, the writer says that every day he receives new punishment. He might be being dramatic, but he might actually feel that. So why does, when I do the right thing, I get nothing, but when people do the wrong thing, they get everything? It seems like the math is almost doesn't kind of add up, right? And so the psalmist has this feeling, and we go, yeah, we can kind of feel that. It's not until verse 17, 16 verses in, where he gives us a very interesting description of what the evil are like and what the wicked are like and what people do when they see them. Well, it's in Psalm 17, uh, 73, verse 17, he says this, Till I enter the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. And see, what the psalmist reminds us of, and we have to remember that this world that we see is not all that there is. And so what we have to remind ourselves in small or great ways is that this world will not be fair. It will never be fair, right? You're looking around this world and going, that's not fair. That's not fair. And God responds to us that life has not been fair since the garden. When sin entered the world, it infected and affected the world. And so when people have disease or when natural disasters strike or when things take place, you go, that's not fair, God. And God's like, I know. But that's not all there is. That this world that we live in, 
however long we're on this planet. And my prayer, of course, for everyone here, that it's a long life. But even if it's a long life, it's still only 100 years, 100, and 100 plus years. Eternity. This, 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 this calculation of, of, of time where it, you think about it, you're stuck in a headache, like eternity doesn't make any sense. Whatever happens here affects there. And the psalmist finally realizes something. He goes, you know what, Lord? Whatever I experience here, whatever I go through here, I will endure and be faithful because there is something else beyond this life. We wrapped up by looking at Revelation chapter 22. And Revelation chapter 22 is the last chapter in the Bible. And in the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says something to, uh, to humanity and to John. John is given like a future vision of when Christ returns. And it says this in Revelation chapter 22. Look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What does Jesus say? When I come, my reward is with me. We want a reward now. We want it now. I want it now. I want health now. I want a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I want a job. I want, I want looks. I want Instagram followers. I want it now. Whatever it would be, I want it now. And Jesus says, there will come a time. And this is something that kind of humbles us and reminds us. There will come a time where we will all stand before God. And we will give account of our lives. And that's when everything makes sense. At that moment, everything falls into place. And all the unfairness, all the injustice, all the hurt, the harm, the violence, the in, like whatever takes place in the world, it's in that moment where everything makes sense again. Because God says, I will make everything right at that time. The reward or the opposite, whatever that is, will be at that moment in time. That's what we looked at last week, and this week we're going to continue on by looking at an aspect of the Psalms many people don't think about. The Psalms are many things, songs, history, and laments, but within this book is quite a few prophecies about Jesus and his life. There are close to 70 explicit prophecies concerning Jesus in the book of Psalms. When we think about the book of Psalms, we think of many things. We think of poetry, and absolutely that is correct. We think of history. We think of laments. Laments are um, calls of anguish. We think of, uh, we talked about a couple of weeks back, called the songs of ascent. Things you sing on the way to church, right? But what the Psalms also hold for us is one of the most concentrated numbers of prophecies about Jesus. And not only about Jesus, but about what future events. Now, Whenever people talk about prophecy, people either get really interested, which is weird, or get really disinterested, which is also understandable, right? Like, I, I think of a couple, about, I think it was last year where this guy said, you know, Jesus is going to return on July 14, 2017. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And, and then what happens was all these people sold their homes and their cars to give him money to big billboards and all that. I'm like, I can't even get people out in church on a Sunday morning and a Sunday out, right? Like, how's this guy getting people to sell his house? But he says, July whatever would be, Jesus is going to return. And people go crazy, right? The media and people and his followers and, and, and people looking, I'm like, ah, right? So when we talk about prophecy, it can kind of fall in that category of people saying really dumb things. They shouldn't. And it can fall in the category of, eh, perhaps we need to be a little bit more um, uh, humble in how we think. We can't look at the Bible and go, oh, I know exactly what this means, whether it's dates or times. Just, we have to relax. But in the Psalms, there are so many specific uh, prophecies about Jesus. Now, there are actually more prophecies than 70. 
I said explicit. These are ones I can point to saying, like, let me show you exactly. There are close to 150 prophecies in total about the life of the Messiah, about Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. So in um, Psalm 78, verse 2, it says this, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old. Now, the reason I put the dates in there, because we need to know when the Psalms are written, right? So in 1015, the writer of this Psalm wrote Psalm 78, and he said something about the Messiah, that the Messiah would speak in parables, and that we see this fulfilled in the life of Jesus in Matthew 13 and other places. Now, as I've said before, and I'll repeat again, speaking in parables is a terrible way to teach. And what's interesting about this is that nobody else imitates this afterwards. We have a couple examples of sermons from Peter, from, um, from Paul, and a couple other disciples, little excerpts, and nobody teaches in parables. And the reason no one does this is because it's a terrible way to teach, because you don't want to stand in front of an audience and go, hey, everyone, thanks for coming out this morning. I'll tell you a story, and I'm not going to tell you the meaning of the story, and you're going to walk away taking whatever meaning you want from it, and then that's what it is, right? Like, that's what Jesus would do. He would get up in front of hundreds and thousands of people, and he would say, hey, a farmer goes out and sows seeds. And that's what he would tell them. And the disciples would come up to Jesus and go, okay. Obviously, you don't want to tell a story about farming, what's actually going on. Jesus is like, okay, I teach so that hearing they may not hear, seeing they may not see. It's like, okay, that's a terrible way to teach, Lord. Like maybe that's somewhat, you know, maybe you've had a couple of teachers have done that. But, you know, that's really a bad way to teach. But what's interesting about this parable, about this prophecy about the Messiah, is that he was going to teach in the parable form because he wanted to invite people, not with here's a truth you need to know, but into a conversation. All Jesus wanted to do is people to come to him and say, hey, what did you mean by that? And whenever people asked, what did you mean by that? Jesus was always like, all right, let me, let me explain to you what I really meant by that. So in Psalm 78, we see that whoever the Messiah was going to be, whatever he was going to uh, accomplish, he would speak in parables. We see as well, too, in Psalm 41, that says this, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. That the psalmist believed that whoever the Messiah is, and again, I use the word Messiah because we always want to put the Bible, especially the Old Testament, in Jewish context, right? And so in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this person called the Messiah, the Moshiach to the Hebrews. And the Messiah was this individual who's going to come and make everything right for Israel. And so in the psalm, the psalmist says in Psalm 41 that the Messiah is going to have somebody close to him who shared bread with him is going to betray him. And again, written in 1023 BC, a thousand years before Jesus even enters this world. Actually, that's not true. Carry the one. About 1,500 years before Jesus shows up. 1,452 years, whatever. You get the idea. So in other words, a long time before Jesus shows up, this writer writes down that, that, that the Messiah is going to be betrayed by somebody who shares his bread. And again, we see this in Mark chapter 14. Um, one more. They will put... Gall in my food and give me vinegar for my thirst. And again, we see this taking place. Now, just so you know, vinegar is not a refreshing drink. Okay? It's not. So the Psalms isn't like, hey, the Messiah's going to drink vinegar. No one drinks vinegar. Okay? Well, except some of you who drink apple cider vinegar. Uh, but apart from that, nobody drinks vinegar. Okay? So the psalmist is writing a prophetic utterance about, for some reason, the Messiah is going to drink vinegar in the future. But again, we see this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. So the, the Psalms are not just simply poetry, flowery speech. They are actually something more than that. 
Um, this morning, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 22. Um, before we get to Psalm 22, we're going to take a look at the passage of Scripture, which we, we are going to use as a springboard into this psalm. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to 46, it says this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would say to you that this is probably one of the most controversial scriptures in the Bible. Because what's happening here, and we saw in the video clip, of course, this rendition of, of, of the crucifixion. But again, what I loved about this rendition is everyone speaks in the Aramaic. Right? And so Jesus is saying this from the cross. Now, if you look at this statement simply from a Gentile context, you're going to miss the point. When I look at commentators, even today, talking about this, they say things like, God turned his face away from Jesus, like God is the wrath, or, 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 or you know, Jesus is separated from God um, at this moment. That's why he's crying this out. Now, that can be true, except for the fact that there's more going on, as there usually is in, with Jesus' life, and we have to kind of dig into this. And only by studying Psalm 22 will you actually understand what's taking place here. Now, I don't, I'm not going to be too controversial this morning, although perhaps by what I've already said, I'm way too late on that. But Psalm 22 is going to give us the context of, uh, of what Jesus is saying here. And when it gives us the context, we are going to be able to go, oh, there's actually more that's taking place here. Um, one of the things we talk about with, uh, with, at UCC here is we always want to understand Scripture in the context of it's being written. Now, the reason I say that is we talk a lot at UCC about the Jewish culture of the Bible. And the reason we do that is because what we want to make sure is that we first understand the people the Bible is being written to. And up till Acts chapter 15, predominantly, the Bible was written to Jewish people. So us Gentiles, and of course I include myself in that, we can read the Bible, we can read scripture, and we can extrapolate our own ways of looking at it, but the problem is we miss out on some hints, some things that are actually taking place. And so some of the modern commentators in the 7th, 8th, ninth century, and even up today, when they look at Matthew 27, they say, Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They say, well, Jesus is crying out to God because God has abandoned him. That on the cross in this moment, Jesus felt abandoned by his father. Or they will say that Jesus felt alone, that he was separated and that sin was upon him. And therefore, God has separated himself from that. And these are actually all valid statements of what's taking place here. I would say to you, without understanding the Jewish context of what Jesus is saying here, you're going to miss the point of what Jesus is actually saying here. So let's dive into Psalm 22, and we're going to take a look a little bit about it. And as I said to you before, what I always try to do whenever I read in the Old Testament is I try to find rabbinic commentators. Now, what I mean by rabbinic commentators are commentators from like the um, 7th to the 13th century BC, right, who look at these passages and tell us something about it. The reason I want to understand what they understood is because I first want to make sure that whatever's being written about this passage, we first have a Jewish filter by which to understand it. And many rabbinic writers say this about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is cited as relating to the afflictions of a Jewish Messiah. 
The major rabbinical passage addressing the subject of a suffering Messiah is found in the Pesitwa Rabbinica, and I'll explain that in a second, a rabbinic homiletic work that contains numerous messianic passages. So many of the rabbis in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about the Messiah, they put together these passages of Scripture that point to the Messiah. Psalm 22, specifically for them, before Jesus even shows up, before the Romans show up and take over Israel, they believe Psalm 22 was talking about the suffering Messiah. That's how they saw it. So you go, oh, okay. So even back before Jesus was born, physically born on the planet, they looked at this passage and said, no, no, this is talking about this this ancient uh, person uh, called the Messiah. And the Messiah, whoever he was, whatever he's going to accomplish, would suffer. So that's the, that's the filter by which they understood it. So when Jesus is hanging upon the cross, the people before him, this is what they're thinking. Now, the reason this is so important is because when we kind of dive into this, you're going to see something happen here um, that takes place that's going to kind of give us a bit more of an understanding. Now, one of the things we have to kind of get out of the way is why does the Bible give details like it does? So in Matthew 27, it says a very interesting statement. It says, in three, at three in the afternoon... For us, I don't know if Jesus crying out on the cross really deserves a time frame. Isn't it not just fair to say that Jesus on the cross, been there for several hours, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the writer seems to say at three in the afternoon. Now, let me tell you the significance to the Jewish person. And we see something in Acts chapter three, verse one, where the Bible gives us a little more context for us Gentiles. It says this, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. See, Jewish people had three times of prayer on a daily basis. In the morning, they would get up and the prayers would be prayers of thanksgiving. God, thank you for giving me another day, right? At the end of the day, they would pray a prayer of, Lord, this is where I messed up during the day. Please forgive me. But at three in the afternoon, the mid-afternoon prayer, kind of for them, the middle of the day was what would they call a prayer of confession, The Hebrew word for this hour of prayer is the minka, the gift offering. This hour of prayer was known as the hour of confession. Why is this important? Because when we read this passage of scripture where Jesus cries out about God forsaking him, we go, wow, God is, Jesus feels really abandoned by God. But to the Hebrew listeners, they're like, no, he's praying when you're supposed to pray. Because as Jesus is on the cross, maybe even people there are whispering prayers. The the, the book of Psalms is a prayer book. If you come from a liturgical background, you would have called it the Psalter. It just simply means a book of prayer. And so the Hebrews were taught to say the Psalms as their prayers. As a matter of fact, the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah for a, a young uh, Hebrew boy and girls, part of it had to be memorization of, he, of the Psalms as your prayer life. So we talk about prayer. When someone says, will you pray over a meal or will you pray at this point? We just make words up. And we use God a lot, and we, we say things, and we hopefully we sound right, and we say a prayer. Well, if you ask a Hebrew to pray, he gets the book of Psalms out, and he recites one of the Psalms. That's their prayer book. So the reason why the writer tells us at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because every Jewish person understands something. Oh, it's the time of prayer. And even though Jesus is upon the cross, he is still praying when the other Jewish people would be praying. Now, the reason why that's important is because if Jesus is praying when he's supposed to be praying and he's praying a psalm, what psalm is he praying? Well, I've already told you the answer. It's Psalm 22. 
Now, let's take a look, and we're going to go through Psalm 22. Now, I'm not going to go verse by verse through this one. I'm going to pull out a couple of things out of this to kind of give you some context for Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David. It's attributed to him. So David is writing the psalm. Now, whenever you have prophecy, there's that word, you have to understand prophecy has two, two layers, right? Prophecy first has to mean something to the people it written to back then. Right? Like, could you imagine in the Old Testament if someone stood up and going, hey, everyone, you haven't heard about this yet, but there's something called the internet that's going to come out. And you will not believe how many cat videos are going to be on it. Right? Of course, back then people were like, what's the internet and why do people like cats so much? Right? We can still ask that question today. But, but if someone in the Old Testament stands up and says that, they're like, ah, right? What you have to remember is that when the prophet stood up and said something, it meant something to the people back then. But the second layer is that there's also external meaning which will be fulfilled in the future. And in Psalm 22, we have both tensions taking place. David's going to start by writing the psalm about himself. But you're going to find out, and you'll see, and I'll show you in the verse in a second, he's also going to be transformed to something more. Because he's going to write stuff that have no meaning to him. Let's take a look at Psalm 22, verses 1 to 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sound familiar to you? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. The psalm begins with the pleading of an innocent man. Remember I told you that rabbinical writers knew that this psalm was a psalm of the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be perfect for God. So Psalm 22 starts out by the Messiah saying, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? And so we look at this, we go, okay. So whatever the person's saying, whoever the person is, they are innocent in what they are saying, and they're crying out to God. That's the context, and that's what Jesus is referring to by Psalm 22. But now let's look at the next couple of verses. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. There's a three-letter word there, which is one of the most powerful words in this tension of the Psalms, but also in the Old Testament, and that's the word yet. God, this world is, is full of injustice. Yet will I praise you. God, I am suffering, I'm hurting, I don't understand why my life has taken this turn. Yet I will worship you. God, I look at this world and I see so many people being hurt and harmed by this government, by this individual, by this disease. Yet will I trust you. The very next verse, the psalmist shifts. He reframes the problem and uses this word yet to kind of help you understand that he is crying out to God saying, God, have you forgotten about me? God, have you abandoned me? And I just want you to be clear about something. If we can really be honest with ourselves, be vulnerable for a moment, haven't we all asked that at some point in time? God, have, have, have you forgotten about me? H- have you forgotten that I'm here? Like I know this world's I mean, it's got 7 billion people. That's a lot of people to keep track of. But have you forgot about little old me? Right? And so the first couple of verses is an absolute human uh, emotion of God, please don't forget about me. God, have you, have, you, have you forgotten? Have you turned your back on me? Is this what it is? But yet, verse 3 and 5, it frames it in a different way. It says, yet, Lord. Now, look at this, though, okay? They trusted and you delivered them and were saved and were not put to shame. 
What's the psalmist saying? He's saying, God, I feel that you're distant and far from me, but I know that you do not abandon those who love you, those who call out to you. See how he's reframing it? Just even in the next verses. But now let's go on and take a look what he, what he says next. Look at um, verses 6 to 8. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. The psalmist isn't about God abandoning him, but about the writer trusting in God despite his circumstances. Look what he says here. You know what the worst thing someone can say about you and the best thing someone can say about you? Is your life sucks and yet you trust God. Your life just rots, but yet you seem to trust God. That's exactly what he's saying there. And these are the exact insults that people are hurling at Jesus upon the cross. If you're the Messiah, if you're this person, if you're this miracle worker, come on off the cross and we'll worship you. Show us something we can really you know, wrap our minds around, then we'll worship you. In three years of Jesus' ministry, he packed in more miracles than any other place in the Bible. He did things that nobody in the Bible ever even got close to. It didn't create faith in any one of them. Right? When these spectacles took place, whether, you know, it's a, it's a person with, with, who is demon-possessed, and again, whatever, however you wrap your mind around that, it's a person that is, in, uh, that is inhabited by another being, and that person would shriek and would just make noises, would cut themselves, would be strong, and yet Jesus would look at this convulsing mass of flesh, and he would call out the darkness within it, and peace would take it over. He would see somebody dead, and not just dead, like dead, dead. And he'd walk up to that person. He would grab their hand. And he would bring them to life. Like Jesus did the most incredible things. And so he's upon the cross. His enemies are all around him. And they look at him and they say, if you trust God, then why is God allowing this to happen to you? Isn't that kind of how we feel sometimes? Yeah, I trust God, but apparently God hasn't trust me. Apparently, God doesn't really think that highly of me because he's letting this happen in my life. Remember, I said to you before, and I'll repeat to you again, suffering brings out the truth of our relationship with God. This is why God allows it to happen, and this is what we hate about it. What we really believe about God is revealed in our suffering. Not our pleasure, not our joy, not in all the stuff we have. But when we suffer, when we hurt, when we are in pain, when someone has hurt us, when somebody has attacked us, that's when our true relationship with God is revealed. But whoever this person is, he's being mocked, he's being insulted, but yet he's, what they're saying about him is that he trusts God. Now, watch this. Look at verse 16 to 18. This is where David gets prophetic. Now look what it says. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my argument, for, for, my, for my garment. Just to be clear, we have a pretty good record of David's life. This never happened to David. We don't know of any time where an enemy pierced David's hands and his feet. We don't know of any time where people gambled over David's clothing. So this is where Psalm 22 all of a sudden goes from context of the here and now, the natural, to something else that's taking place. 
And we see it so clearly. David hasn't fought back against his enemies, but awaits God's help. Psalm 22 isn't about God abandoning. Psalm 22 is about God, it's about the person trusting in God despite the circumstances. Like, look at this. A pack of villains encircle me. Jesus is upon the cross, and there's a crowd of people around him. And we don't know, however, but if the Bible is accurate, there was probably like a couple hundred people on this, this place of crucifixion. Jesus would have been absolutely surrounded. Now remember, crucifixion is death by hours. It's not instantaneous. Every insult, every person who ever looked at Jesus said, I knew you were a fraud. I knew you were a phony. I knew you were a fake. And they would just say that to him hour after hour. It's not enough. This guy's bleeding to death, suffocating on his own fluids. But these people are hurling insults at him, surrounding him. And this is what Jesus is pointing to in Psalm 22. Now watch this. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Throughout the psalm, the theme of God being close to David, close to this person, is repeated. Now, the reason I want to show you this verse is because if you read commentators today, they will say something like, in this moment, when Jesus cried this out, God hid his face from Jesus. God separated himself from Jesus. God abandoned Jesus. God turned his back on Jesus. And by reading the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You could absolutely believe that. Except for the part you have to read the psalm that Jesus is quoting. Because in the psalm he's quoting, it says, he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And the reason why I find this so astounding is, is because Jesus feels forsaken, or does he? Is Jesus not calling out to the people to let them know, I'm up on this cross and I'm dying, but my hope and my trust is in God. He will defend me. He will show me the way. And you don't know this, spoiler alert but in a couple of days, I will be alive again. See, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, and he didn't quote it to say he felt abandoned by God, but he quoted it to draw the people there. Remember, Psalm 22 is in the prayer book of the Jewish people. When Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many of them there would have probably had this Psalm memorized. And all of a sudden, in that moment, they would have had this kind of aha moment of like, what have we done? Jesus is calling out Psalm 22, and now their memory is going back and remembering this psalm and remembering about, about the hands and, and feet being pierced, about the pack of dogs surrounding them, but how God is close to this person and that God has not abandoned him. And all of a sudden, in this moment, the psalm and this cry of Jesus takes on a different light. Because what would it say about God that he would abandon Jesus upon the cross. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that the Father is my strength, that I trust the Father, he's talking a Trinitarian relationship about God. What would it say about God that Jesus all of a sudden is now separated from him because of of, of the plan that God had all along for him? 
And in verse 24, we see that wasn't the case at all. And to have the Jewish understanding of Psalm 22, we realize, oh no, that when Jesus hung upon the cross, when he suffered in agony hour after hour, his father was close to him. His father did not turn his face away from him. And the reason that's so important is because we ourselves can say, in my suffering, in my agony, in my pain, in my doubt, in my uncertainty, God is close to me. Now watch how the psalm closes. Verse 30 to 31. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Think of those words for a second. The last words in Psalm 22, he has done it. You know another way of saying that? It is finished. At the very end of Psalm 22, Jesus echoes what the psalmist says. My trust is in God. He is close to me. I am the innocent one. My enemies are attacking me, yet I trust in God. The psalmist is saying that whatever is happening right here, right now, has a future implication. That we sitting in the Prince's Twin Cinema on July 29, 2018, we are the beneficiaries of something that took place 2,000 years ago. And it was prophesied longer than that, three, 4,000 years ago when this writer, when, when David wrote this psalm down. We are going to be celebrating communion in a moment. And the reason I wanted to do Psalm 22 is because I wanted to give you a deeper context of what God had in mind. Psalm 22 gives us a deeper insight into the cry, into Jesus' cry from the cross. It helps us to understand he wasn't abandoned. He wasn't forsaken. He wasn't, God did not turn his face from him. God did not turn his back on him. God did not do any of these things as we have been told or taught or spoken about. Because in Psalm 22, the God of Psalm 22 is close to the person that is brokenhearted. Let me close this morning with Hebrews chapter 4. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews had a very deep insight into the sacrifice system, into, um, into how... Um, the Jewish people understood the high priest and all that. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it says something very interesting about Jesus. It says this, Since then, so, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. What does Hebrews 4 tell us? That we all suffer. That we all feel abandoned by God. This is the most human emotion we can have about our relationship with God. But it tells us something else important as well too. That God has suffered. That he understands our weakness. And because of this, because of what he accomplished on the cross, that we get to walk boldly into the throne of grace. You know what that means? You don't knock. You're not asking if you're invited. You don't go, is it okay if I show up? You walk straight in. Because you are a son and daughter of the Most High God. You are bought with a price. You are children of Abraham. All these metaphors that we use to talk about an intimate relationship with God.
Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, because of the cry that he said to everyone to help them understand what was going on, that cry says, you know what? You can feel sorry for me now. You can mock me. You can do all you want, but God will redeem me. God will show people what his plan is all about. And we, thousands of years displaced from that, we can stand before God and say, God, I doubt. I don't understand. I don't know. I, I, I fall. I fail. But Lord, you know it. You have empathy for me. You, you understand. And because of that, I stand before you.